you know, sometimes it feels like you're grabbing at clouds, right? You, you think you're approaching an idea, you think you're approaching a theory or a philosophy, and then you, or when you're holding onto it, it kind of evaporates in your fingers. Other times, you know, you land on something, kind of explains the way things work all of a sudden. It's always kind of like re-slicing the same thing in different ways. It's just different ways to approach the same end point. This is the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pierno. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. We are going to have a very good talk. Well, let me ask you, listeners, do you trust me that we're going to have a good episode? See what I did there, Jasmine? Was that amazing? (laughs) Masterful. (laughs) I am nothing else if not a master of the segue. Um, Today's guest is Jasmine Bina, who is the CEO of Concept Bureau. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, I'm so happy to be here. She is tolerating my sloppy segue and my terrible dad jokes, <laughs> which I appreciate. I'll take it. <laughs> no, they're great. I love dad jokes. They're the best kind. They are. They are. And what do you want? The alternative, like dark, dirty jokes from some guy in the exactly. office? No, then you're right. great. Um, <laughs> Let's, let's, um, I want to jump in and talk about your article that you wrote about um, trust and the tipping point of trust. But before mm-hmm. we do that, would you give people a sense of the, the people who may not be familiar with who you are, just a sense of um, where you've been and what you've done? Yeah, sure. So um, I am the CEO of Concept Bureau. I've, this has been pretty much the, the, my life's work. Um, I started this agency about 10 years ago while I was in grad school. Then it wasn't called Concept Bureau and it was more focused on public relations. And um, I kind of fell into the startup scene, uh, started, you know, just did some freelance work for a friend who launched a tech startup and then it turned into an actual business and we grew and working with a lot of Silicon Valley startups. And at that time, you could be a startup in Silicon Valley and get funding and get, you know, millions of users even, <laughs> and, and not even know how you got there. You know, it was, it was a time when it was kind of like, you know, the internet was reinventing itself. Um, it was the wild west of the app economy and we would get these brands that would come to us and they were like, all right, we've raised whatever in our series C, we have millions of users, great metrics. We want to go to press. And, you know, we did more like, um, more long tail PR stuff um, for companies that were really trying to either create a new narrative or create a new space. And I would tell them, I don't have a brand. There's no brand here because you could get big without having a story. You could get big without having a strategy um, at that time. Certainly not anymore. But, um, you know, it was just kind of like this crazy time. And so we would do a quick and dirty brand strategy before we could get to the PR. And at that time, I didn't have the foresight to see that that was really the value add. I thought it was just something I had to do before I could do my real work. And it became a bigger and bigger part of our offering. Um, We got really good at it. I realized I enjoyed that piece a lot because we did a lot of crisis communications too. And so like, I'm I'm convinced I took years off the end of my life, but you know, it was high stress. Yeah, I was really hardwired for high stress. And um, even though I loved it and I was really good at it, um, I had a fantastic mentor at the time who told me that really this whole space was going to move towards brand strategy. And that's um, that was going to be where the margins were and the the budgets were going to move from PR to that space. And so 
I thought, okay, great. We will rebrand our own company and we'll start doing brand strategy. But I didn't know because I had never sold brand strategy before. I had done it, but it was just always as an add-on. So that's when I started writing. My I met my partner at the time and he told me that, you know, he comes from an engineering background and for him, everything is systems and processes. And I remember arguing with him, like white knuckles arguing, saying strategy cannot be systematized. You know, it's branding is so it's so internal and creative and it comes from a creative place. And, oh, that's so and, funny. How do you feel about yeah. it now? Oh man, I can't think outside of a framework anymore. Like yeah. I just, I need it to help me get to where I'm going. And it took me a long time to trust frameworks, even though the even the ones I created myself. But, you know, he really taught me that um, if you can't put constraints around creativity, you're really limiting the creativity itself. Even though that sounds counterintuitive, um, you need to have a reliable process for coming to the same conclusion every time or else, I mean, how are you even going to build a business if it's always going to come out of, you know, the recesses of your mind? So, um, that's why I started writing, you know, to figure out what do I actually believe about brand strategy? What's my philosophy? I I needed to articulate it and I couldn't do it unless I was, you know, literally like transcribing it out of my head. Um, and it's still, it's still why I write. I feel like there's so much more to kind of like discover or um, figure out about where strategy is going. Cause you know, as long as the world is changing, strategy will be changing. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, and, and so now I, I feel like I have two jobs related. One is the writing, which is the piece that I absolutely love. And then concept bureau, which is a brand strategy agency. We work with um, clients from, all industries, all verticals. Um, I'd say if we had some specialties, it would be that we focus on the post-boomer generation. That's where the bulk of my research has been over the years. Um, Mm. People that are, you know, 45 or 40 and younger um, and really creating new behaviors in users. I feel that brand is like the the silver bullet. It's the fastest way to get people to see the world differently, to behave differently in that world, um, and to create a new reality out of it, really. No, and that's, it's really helpful for crisis communications to have a brand, because then you know, it's a backbone that you can lean, push back against and say, no, no, we're always about this. And so our answer has to relate in this way. Uh, when you don't have a brand or a story or anything, crisis communications is just coming out with, with uh, a shield up and hoping you don't get slaughtered. That, that is so 100% true. And people really don't understand that. It's, it's such an insurance policy because, you know, when a crisis happens, it's always because you were acting off brand and even if you don't have a brand, that itself is a narrative. It is an identity. And when you, when you move outside of your lane, essentially, that's when a crisis crops up. Um, and so, you know, being able to return to that place and say like, okay, we remember who we are now. We will not do this again. We, 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 we know what we need to do differently next time because we have such a strong belief in our identity. That's what kind of brings people back to a place of trust. Um, and it's invaluable. You know, every time you invest in your brand, you're really investing in where your company will be in two to five years. It's not just for today. It's, it's definitely for a, a timeline. No, and it sustains and it carries you through those downtimes when people are uncertain about what's happening. They have that always to tie back to and go, oh, right. I remember this rough association of the brand. Yeah. Well, I should bring you to my pitch meetings. Yes, absolutely. I'll be there, man. You love me. 
<laughs> you can zoom me in. Now we know how to do that. Right. Well, I wanted to talk to you today about, uh, as I so sloppily did in the introduction, the, the word trust, because you had a very interesting uh, definition of the word trust that you covered in uh, an article, which obviously I will link to here in the show notes. But you want to you want to give people a sense of what that what how you defined trust in that article? Right. So, you know, trust is it, people have tried to define it in many different ways. It's one of those words that's kind of hard to figure out, kind of like, um, you know, the word cool or the word porn, you know, you know what it is, but you can't quite articulate it in words. And the best definition I found essentially, the summary of it is trust is believing that you will behave a certain way or do a certain thing, even though I know I can't control what you do. And it creates interesting tipping points. So in brands, a lot of times I feel like it's important to bring users to a tipping point of trust where, you know, there's, there's a risk, there's vulnerability, but you get users to a point where you reward them for taking that risk and they cross that threshold and a, a new form or excuse me, a new bond is created with them. Um, because you've created that, that trust making experience. It's, it's the moment that you go from, let's say shopping to consuming or from witnessing to being, I love a lot of times say from conscious to subconscious, you're either cognizant of what you're doing when you're interacting with a brand or you're literally just experiencing it. And we always want to get our users to that experience, um, side of the equation. It's really a deeper way of connecting with a brand and its story and its identity. Um, I know that sounds very abstract and and uh, up in the clouds, but we I think a great way, like a universal experience that we've all had, is is Airbnb. So, you know, you it it seems very commonplace now, but just imagine using Airbnb for the first time again. And there's so much anxiety leading up to when you actually arrive at your host's home. You don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know if you can trust the photography or the descriptions. You don't know if you're going to like the person that's there to give you the keys, um, if it's going to be clean, whatever. And when you get there, something happens the first morning or the second morning after you get there, you're drinking coffee on the patio and you feel relaxed. You feel like you are not just in the home, but you're in the city. You are there. Um, and you've passed that tipping point of trust. And what's interesting about that example though, is that it's really easy to look at that and say, Oh, well, that's a design solution, right? Uh -huh. They created a product that gets you over that tipping point. Well, that's, but really, yeah, that's uh -huh. what it, that's what hooked me in about um, your thinking on this because I'm not a uh, I've never used Airbnb and I don't <laughs> they haven't figured they haven't figured me out yet because I just don't <laughs> I don't want to be standing at that door having that doubt. I like going right. to. Um, I guess maybe I'm just uh, of that age where I, I still want to go to a hotel and know what I'm getting, and there'll be a bed and a flat screen TV and a lamp. I can't figure out how to turn on. Right, <laughs> right. So their message hasn't reached you yet, but um, you know, Airbnb. I just I can't stress this enough to people. It's not that they designed a product or an experience that got you over the tipping point. They planted a story in your head way before you got there. So I don't know if you remember when they did their rebrand many years ago and they got so much flack, the whole belong anywhere campaign and people were making fun of the logo, um, which was really just a red herring. It was a brilliant campaign. When they started talking about belong anywhere, 
they were saying travel is not about travel. Travel is about belonging. And they could have talked about a lot of things. They could have compared their features to a hotel, their pricing, their convenience, whatever, but they chose not to. They said, you can find yourself through an Airbnb experience. And for a generation of people who, you know, millennials that feel disenfranchised, who feel lost in the world, that's a very compelling story. It's a very compelling promise. So by the time you get to your Airbnb, you're not thinking about traveling. You're expecting self-discovery. And so you're not comparing it to hotel. You're not looking for clean sheets or, you know, being able to call room service in the middle of the night. What you're looking for is to feel like you belong in a city, that you're immersed in the experience of that location. And, um, they framed you for the tipping points so that when you got there, you, you understood it and you, can, you, could, you could put yourself over that line. Um, it, it was so effective. Now you see hotels literally trying to brand themselves for the cities that they're in, right? Creating these hyper-local experiences. And it's, it's, it's a great step. I don't, it's, it's kind of missing the point, but um, that's how powerful a tipping point can be if you engineer it correctly. And you can see the product comes second to the story and the brand which comes first. And so which part for you as a, when you started using, let's keep, let's stay on the Airbnb example. Sure. The story, seeding the story helped you build the trust even after one or two experiences where you were still on the fence. Right. So um, to be honest, I was never on the fence. I had great initial experiences, but I knew, you know, they had fantastic photography and, and the films that they were making at the time um, belong anywhere. I felt, you know, it sounds trite now, but it was provocative when it came out. It, It made you stop and think. And you realize like, this was not just about like, recreational tourism, um, you realize that you could actually have an emotional experience in a place. So when you wake up in Paris and you hear like, you know, the bread truck downstairs or like people screaming at each other, um, you know, you know, cause then you, whatever, somebody's throwing a newspaper or something and I'm totally making this up. It's, it's, that's not what happens, but like, you know, you, you, would, you would be in a hotel and that would piss you off but you're in an Airbnb and you feel like it's quaint. You feel like you're having an honest Parisian experience because Because they primed you for that. They primed you with a context. Exactly. That's exactly it. And so, so anything that would be a disturbance when you're on the 12th floor of a Marriott, all of a sudden (laughs) it feels like you're immersed. Yes. It feels like you're, you're, experiencing something authentic. It feels like you belong there. Like you're witnessing something that you wouldn't have witnessed at a hotel. And in many ways you wouldn't have witnessed it, even if it did happen there, because you're, you would have been looking at it differently. Because you're insulated. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it always feels one step away. Yes. Very true. That's another thing that that brand did. They really pulled you closer. And every time you, every time a brand creates a tipping point and people participate in that, it is about bringing you closer, you know, just like any kind of trust building relationship. When you, when you take a risk and then you're rewarded for that risk, you develop trust with the other party and brands can do this. There's so many ways that brands can do this and do it really effectively. Um, And it's just like a human relationship. It's, it's really not that different. Well, human relationship is really critical uh, when we frame trust because that's the first thing a lot of people will think of. They'll, they will compare trusting a brand or trusting a company to trusting a person, which is uh, in the Airbnb example, I'm trusting 
first this brand that will deliver the experience they promise. And then I'm trusting that the provider of the property will deliver on the photos they posted and the reviews that they got. It's, it's very similar to a lot of, uh, uh, modern brands like Uber and Lyft mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. where there's a middle component. If there's the brand and then there's the human element or the exchange element that yeah. is, is a, a weird proxy for um, the way retail used to be where you'd go in and actually you might talk to somebody and now everything is as automated as we can get it and separate people as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely true. I, I, I didn't even really see the retail parallel until you mentioned it, but yeah, 100%. Um, and what's interesting about these brands and the, you know, the Uber example too is it's difficult when you're a brand of brands because every host is a brand. Every driver is a brand. You know, they're, they're, they're their own experience. It's hard to get your brand experience to kind of be the halo above those things. Um, but when you do it well, then people, when I have a good experience with a driver, I'm not grateful just to the driver. I am grateful to Uber. Uh, when I have a bad experience with a driver, I want to yell at Uber. So, you know, pros and cons, but they own the relationship, which I, I think is remarkable when really your relationship has been kind of like fragmented into all of these service providers across your platform. Yeah. It gives you a, a place to go with the issue versus a you know a sole proprietor that you know you're not going to get any satisfaction whereas Uber you believe has to protect its own reputation it has your best interest at state you know at heart yeah sure absolutely so they, the brand becomes the insurance policy that your experience will be again yes exactly yes yeah we, that seems like it's a theme right <laughs> right I should write about it yeah there you go well you're geez, you're prolific looking at your <laughs> you write a lot. Yeah, it's it's definitely if I could just write, I probably would, but I cannot I can't really write unless I'm doing the work behind the writing. So, um it's very symbiotic, you know, doing the client work and doing the writing. Um every client we're lucky. We have clients that push us and um we I don't think we've ever had a client where we haven't like slightly iterated our price process at least a little bit. And then that just makes me think of things a little bit differently and it always inspires a piece. Well, you brought up the idea of, you know, trusting the framework. And I thought, well, yeah, you, you, you always start with the framework, but the framework always gets broken. I mean, any, any time, anytime you create a process, the first thing into the process almost always bends it or breaks it. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's almost like uh, you're building a ledge that you're going to jump off of and, you know, it'll just crumble beneath your feet as you're, you know, airborne. Yeah. And everybody understands once, once you're halfway out on the ledge, you say, Oh, that's right. I'm going to fall off of this thing. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I built something else that I can. Spend. <laughs> right. Right. It does feel like that. Yeah. Very often. Um, let's talk about vulnerability. Now mm-hmm. in the, in the Airbnb or the Uber examples, there's a literal vulnerability you're going into yes. someone's home, but let's, let's take it to another type of brand just to, um, just to make it a little bit more uh, abstract and brand related, a little less literal, like, sure. e- you know, like a regular e-commerce brand or a, like a dollar shave club or something. What does vulnerability mean from a consumer point of view as they're in- be engaging with a brand? Yeah. Um, so the one example I can think of um, 
And there's another, uh, maybe a more literal, literal one that would be interesting too. So the ordinary, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're, they're a beauty brand and they have, um, a lot of different skincare products. Their philosophy was that they were going to just sell the active ingredients in most common skincare lines. So instead of buying like a night cream, you were buying retinol or instead of buying like a, a under eye wrinkle cream, you were buying, um, Reservatrol or something. You were, or I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but you were just buying the active ingredient. They were stripping down and kind of demystifying what skincare could be. Cause there's so many active ingredients and you kind of just trust that like, you know, uh, uh, title or Caudalie or Sunday Riley, they're going to, they're going to come up with a concoction that has all the right elements and the right formulations to make you look fantastic or feel great. What they did was, so they sell everything in identical bottles at the identical sizes, and they don't tell you necessarily what it does. They tell you the formulation that's inside of it. They tell you the pH levels. They tell you what you can mix it with and what you can't mix it with, but they don't tell you at all what your regimen should look like or what you can actually combine with, with something else. Um, or uh, I think they've started telling you how much of each thing that you can use. The whole point of it was it looked more like a chemist set than it looks like um, a a beauty kit. So you literally had to learn about these things. And there were huge like Facebook communities and like private groups that popped up with thousands of girls, you know, sharing their regimens, sharing their knowledge, their research, you know, how they found a way to kind of like create something that worked for their skin type and the combinations. And, you know, these were people that were already kind of beauty junkies, but now they were like information junkies and, and, you you had to make yourself a skincare expert in order to use this product properly and there's vulnerability there because there's risk involved it's a it's a time investment it's a money investment you could possibly hurt your skin if you don't combine <laughs> things in the right way right and um or you could be wasting your time if you don't combine things in the right way either and um you know, the, the risk was huge, but the reward was huge too, because now all of a sudden you're not using these beauty products as a consumer. You're using them as an expert. You, I mean, when I was, when I figured out my ordinary regimen and I had had conversations with girls in these groups and, and, and came to understand like the world that lived outside of the product, um, I felt like who needs a dermatologist? You know, I don't, who needs to trust some BS story that a brand is telling me about, you know, you know, some chemical compound they found in the grapevines of wherever. I've, I felt like I was empowered and I was much more discerning and I had a very, I put a different value on the product. It, that's a huge reward when you, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a less obvious vulnerability, but a very profound one if you think about it. And I can tell you from experience, it was for me. It's similar um, it, to the stories about Snapchat making their product difficult yes, to figure yes. out so that people felt like they were in control or had a secret once they, once they learned it and they could show somebody else. Yeah, 100%. You're trying to figure out, like seeing a filter that somebody had or some sort of feature and like trying to figure out where the hell it was in the UX so you could use it yourself. Um, yeah, that's 100% true. And, you know, there's also, I think, the, the cool factor of finding those things early. And cool is, I might write a piece on the idea of what cool is because I'd like to deconstruct what makes something cool because it's, <laughs> it's hard to figure out really. Um, although people have tried. 
let's do it. I'm in. I'll help you. Let's let's partner on that. <laughs> right. I, you know, I'm doing research right now on uh, experience and meaningful experiences. It's something something I'm working on, and the the idea, you know, UX has become a uh, not a buzzword, but you know, just has become a boilerplate standardized term. When you really think about it, I'm not sure everybody knows how to define UX. I think there yeah. are definitions for it. But in the case of the cosmetics brand you just mentioned, the UX goes beyond whatever their digital yeah. presence looks like. I mean, it's the it's the navigation of figuring that out. It's the relationship you built with the community. It mm-hmm. is opening the first jar you got and yeah. smelling that smell and saying, whoa, I don't think I'm scared or I feel good about this. Right. No, you're absolutely right. UX, depending on how you want to engineer your brand, it can go to really, really interesting places that you may not have considered it before. How do you think about UX as you're working on brands? And and never mind UX, but how do you think about experience as a as a medium for brand or as a layer? Uh, it's definitely a very critical layer, but it's a, it's a layer. And I, and I mean that in the UX sense, maybe not so much experience. I, I think you really, I firmly believe, and this is not just because I do this for a living. I firmly believe that you start with the brand and you build a business on top of that. It, it, it's not the other way around. And UX is just an extension of brand. I think people think UX can do remarkable things. Um, and it can't. And UX can be a little, it can, um, it can throw you off the scent a little bit. I think sometimes people use UX to really get rid of a lot of friction in the user experience. And, and that makes sense, right? You want to have a frictionless checkout page. You want to be able to customize your shoes easily and, and, and quickly on the website, you know, whatever it is. And those are all UX problems that are commonly solved. But, um, you know, UX, if it is always about making the experience easier, you're not really inviting vulnerability in any way. And um, I don't, I don't even know that you could do it through UX. And I, you know, I might be going off on a tangent here, so forgive me. But um, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, before this conversation. Can you? Can a, can a brand be based on on UX? Can you communicate a brand fully through UX? Because I've had clients think that as well in the past. And my gut reaction has always been no. But if you if you dig into it, let's look at like a really big problem um, or like a really big thing. Something I've been thinking about lately is the concept of wellness or self-care. That is a remarkable concept. It's a really fascinating term that has just permeated every industry. And I think it still has a really long way to go. But look at what it's done. It's, it's turned... Um, the sex care or sex toy industry on its head. Now you can find sex toys at CVS and Walmart because they're being branded as self-care products or wellness products. Um, CBD and marijuana is going through a total renaissance because it's being branded as self-care or um, beauty even, you know, beauty is being rebranded as self-care. So it's really about an experience and not so much about, you know, getting rid of your wrinkles. And these are things that before would sound like sex, drugs, vanity, but now they're self-care. They're not any of those things. And it gives people permission to, um, to engage with them without whatever shame or biases or baggage usually comes with those, with those stories or whatever. And, um, you know, the, the, that, that word did that, the semantics of that branding did that. I mean, could a UX do something like that? I don't, I don't think so. 
And that's the difference. Well, you know, the trend, you, you made a good point about cutting out friction in UX and trying to make it as seamless as possible, which uh, I've just seen the research that says the more seamless it is, the more forgettable the experience is, mm. which ultimately for building a brand is, is terrible. So you, you have to be intentional about where do you want to stop people in the process to make them think without making them feel that they've been corralled or bottlenecked in, right. in their task done. It's, it's choosing where do you want to put the focus of their time. Yes, absolutely. You know, we're even working with a client right now that has a, a huge platform. Um, and, you know, when we did a lot of user interviews for them, we realized that, you know, the user interviews were the first time, and this was just in the course of our research, it was the first time that their users that we spoke to had a chance to really reflect on what the platform had done for them. And um, it, it brought them to a place of really appreciating the product. But that, that moment of pause in the UX didn't exist. There was no place to stop and say, wow, look at, look at what this product has done for me. Look at how far I've come because of this product, who I've become because of this product. Um, and probably because they, they engineered it out to, to make it a super seamless experience. But sometimes to your point, you know, forcing people to stop, forcing them to, to um, feel a little friction can also cause them to um, appreciate what the experience is in the first place. Right. And, if, and in a case where you don't do that, you're only setting yourself up for either A, it works flawlessly and they move through seamlessly and forget, you know, they can't remember mm -hmm. their password or anything. <laughs> or, right, if you use uh, last password or any of, the, any of those things, all of a sudden it's like, I don't remember anything about that. I push a button and it solves it. Right. Or the other side, which could be, it normally works seamlessly, but this time it stopped at phase three and now I'm pissed and I'm watching the spinning wheel yes. and figure out figure out why I'm frustrated from a service that has, you know, been perfect 20 times in a row. And this 21st time I'm shaking my fist. Yeah. Well, again, because if your UX is your brand, then where do people, what do people fall on when that UX fails? There's nothing else that, that that's it. You know, it's that one point that, that they rest their entire relationship on and then you broke it. Yeah. And then I guess going back to the question about being vulnerable, you don't want to make someone vulnerable vulnerable about the success or failure of the thing they're buying. So if, if it's mm -hmm. UX and the vulnerability is, is this thing going to work? <laughs> no. Yeah. And that's absolutely not the kind of vulnerability we're talking about. I mean, I think that's just basic functionality. I wouldn't even call that vulnerability. You're, you're totally right. Um, that's the kind you want to steer clear from. You want people to come out the other side having feeling like they're in control or having learned something or having uh, achieved something, a higher order benefit that's beyond, you know, accomplishing the task. Absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, this was a fantastic talk. Um, Jasmine, I really appreciate you making time on a uh, lovely Tuesday evening. Um, My pleasure. This was good. It went by really fast. It did. Flew by. I was looking at the clock. I'm like, oh, this is over. <laughs> I'm out of time. <laughs> you, listen, you you have a, a return visit anytime you want. You let me know. You come back on next time. You, you'll write an article every three days, so I'm sure that you'll have. <laughs> I would love to, because you know what? I had great examples. I didn't get to use in this one, so I'll, I'll put them to use next time. You got it. Let's set it up. Okay. Thank you so much, Adam. I really enjoyed this. Hey, my pleasure. Hey, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me at our, our website, uh, conceptbureau.com. Um, I'm also on Medium where I publish 
everything, um, uh, all of our best thinking, I don't believe that our ideas or our processes are IP. Um, we put everything out there and, um, have a good community of people that are talking about these ideas. And if you're interested in being a part of that, check me out there. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, uh, triple jazz, triple J A S is my handle for pretty much everything. Um, and, uh, yeah, come talk to me. Awesome. Thank you again. I, I do appreciate it. Awesome. Sounds good. So long. Bye. Your feedback means everything. Send us a tweet at Apierno or at strategy underscore inside. Leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. And please, please, please share this podcast with your friends. Let people know you like it and send people you want to be guests our way. We would love to hear more. Strategy Inside Everything is produced and hosted by Adam Pierno. For information about the show or to find out how to be a guest, you can go to adampierno.com slash podcast. For information about Adam's books, Underthink It and Specific, or to find out how to invite Adam to be a speaker at an upcoming event, please go to adampierno.com slash speaker. Thanks for listening.